Happiness versus Flourishing, episode 13. Welcome to the podcast where we give you ideas on how to have a more flourishing life. Today's guest is Jonas Altman, who is a speaker, writer, entrepreneur, and he's on a mission to make the world of work more human. And so we talk about a number of different areas in this uh, this episode about working and the hours that people put into it and the meaning they get from it and how that might change in the near future and in the long term as well. So we're going to be coming on to that very soon. If you do like this episode, why not share it with someone who you feel could get some real value from some of the, some of the material that Jonas shares with us? Why not subscribe, leave a review, that's all good material. That's all good stuff that helps uh, more people hear about the podcast. Right now, it is time for Jonas. Happiness versus flourishing. My guest today, Jonas Altman. How are you doing, Jonas? I'm doing great, Tony. And you're in, uh, in Canada. I am in Vancouver, British Columbia which you can tell that in the name is colonized and it's yep. the west coast. Uh, some people call it the end of the world. I think it's the beginning. <laughs> why, why would people call it the end of the world? We kind of, you kind of are nestled in between uh, mountains, like pretty mm-hmm. much the Canadian Rockies start, yep. and the Pacific Ocean. So going okay. north, you, you hit Alaska. Going west, you hit Hawaii. And mm. so it feels not so much like the end, but very safe. It's one of the safest places on the planet right now. And mm. it feels such that it can't really grow bigger, right? You can only mm. really go up, uh, like high, and there's, there's, that's starting to happen. Or mm. you go east, which is also happening. But Vancouver mm. proper is, is sort of sitting at the same size as Paris, uh, mm. somewhere between 800,000 to 2 million, depending on how you measure it. Right. And is that where you grew up? Yeah, I was born and bred here. My family moved from uh, Eastern Europe. My grandfather moved from London to Winnipeg, which is even smaller and colder. And then he moved his family to get out of the cold to a more mild climate here. And as we were talking before the recording started, and you've been, well, you traveled quite a bit and you, you spent some time in London, didn't you? Yeah, I I guess what happened was I had itchy feet when I found out that there's so many other cool places to go. Mm. Um, And I had been to London as a teenager and I hated it. We went to Camden Market and it was raining for three days. And I was like, this is terrible. And I didn't eat fish at the time. Uh, And then as I got older, I went back as a teenager and I was like, oh, I I get why London was the swinging London and the energy and the people and the creativity. So mm. I find it a fascinating city and probably definitely one of my, you know, favorite. And I'd say it's obviously a world-class city. Mm. And, and so, so business-wise, um, now I've been looking over some of the stuff you do. You, it's, you've got a very interesting approach to things. So would you like to ex- describe to the listeners what it is you do? Oh, I'm glad you use the word interesting because that's interesting that you use that. Um, I wanted to work around people who were passionate. That was something I knew 
because I wasn't really sure what it is that I wanted to do. And I found mm. the ability to work in the music industry scratched an itch because I was very passionate about music, as I know you are. Mm. Uh, so just being around people who were fascinated by record labels and artists and old Motown records and new acid jazz albums and Giles Peterson, that to me was everything. And it was pretty much the beginning of seeing that you could marry your passion uh, with your work, which mm -hmm. is you know a whole long literature of uh, how to do that and should you do that. Um, and so since then, I've gone through various careers and reinventions. And now, uh, very similar to you, I coach, I train, and I teach. And I happen mm -hmm. to love writing as well. So I find most of my days are uh, immersed in conversation, reading, learning, and helping. And I feel very grateful to be able to do all of that. And so how did that all come about? I mean, what, what was it that, of you know, you mentioned about sort of reading and teaching and coaching and so on. How did, what, what did you get into first? Um, trouble. I got into trouble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's see. Um, well, I think, I think everyone is, I think all human beings are curious, but I think there's certain people who you meet and no matter what you're talking about, whether it's high frequency training or the dentist or Pluto, they're, they're just interested to learn. And I think I got that uh, instilled in me from my mom and my dad mm. uh, from a young age. And I, I think I had that. So I think that helped me to be curious about a lot of things. It could also mm. be a, um, a curse because you can never stop and you don't really pick one thing and you potentially run into a conundrum of being, you know, uh, jack of all trades and master of none. Mm. Today, I feel like that actually could be a currency. If you can get really, really deep with behavioral psychology and startup culture and change management, quickly though certain things fall together so mine would be philosophy design mm -hmm. marketing and education both things i've studied like formally and both buckets that i really feel like i went deep enough whether it's you know uh to the point of having a phd no but to the point of being able to have a a, a conversation with uh openness and with some uh, measured beliefs, then I think I could talk to, to each of those areas. Mm. Uh, coaching is relatively new. I was a mentor and an advisor for a long time. I worked with a lot of incubators. I worked in a think tank. I worked with charities. But when I found mm. out about the modality of coaching about four or five years ago and then started training as a coach, I, I understood the power of the, um, the gentle inquiry as opposed to, you know, um, why did you do this, both from a leadership point of view in your family dynamics and in and anything really, as well as going with the assumption that people are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole and can solve their own problems. And I no longer mm. need to be the fixer or try to be the fixer and admitting that people don't need to be fixed. So mm. that's been very powerful. So I think that's how I landed in this sort of current position but i'm pretty aware that it's a way station to somewhere else as well hmm. and you your book shapers when did that come out 
It came out two weeks ago in Canada, and it came out early August in the UK. So it's pretty new. And so, well, so for people listening who maybe don't know anything about the book, so, well, it's called Shapers, Reinvent the Way You Work and Change the Future. So what what was your goal with the book when you first wrote it? My goal with the book is everywhere I worked, I never felt like me. I always felt that I had to subordinate or stuff or put aside parts of myself that I actually liked just to fit in. So whether it was a creative company or a university or a nonprofit or a startup, whatever it might have been, I didn't feel like I had the, uh, well, one, I maybe didn't give myself permission, which is another story, but I didn't feel like I had the ability to be myself. And I wondered if I was just, something was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started a little bit of a journey in 2014, actually it was 2012 when it really started, but 2014 properly, where I was just curious about people who didn't conform to what they did for work. And in many ways, their currency was their uniqueness and their idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. So one of those worlds was the advertising uh, world where people were sort of paid for their ideas, a lot of sort mm-hmm. of the ideas economy. And I found there was a whole bunch of people from independent workers and freelancers to startup founders to change makers inside organizations that really didn't care about if someone didn't like their full self and that mm. was someone else's problem. And that was uh, exhilarating to me. So I started investigating that. I started writing about it more and more self-management and the practice of not having any bosses, teamwork that's more fluid instead of uh, stable and permanent, uh, different modes of leadership that are rooted in um, strength and abundance versus fear. And all of these things I started to sort of gather and then I got offered a deal to, to write uh, a book. And I, I was like, wait, you're going to pay me to write about this? And I was like, I'm in. Uh, so it's, it was a journey of, of me trying to find meaning in my work. And I thought by writing the book, I potentially could help others to discover the path for them themselves. And so how long a process was that? So, uh, 2016 is when I started in the spring. Um, mm. I thought I was finished in uh, 2019, which was last mm. year. And I got a sort of a newsflash that like the hard work began in the final year of rewriting and really making it cohesive as opposed mm. to a lot of sort of mm, related ideas that didn't really interlock with a common thread to help the reader go from A to Z, mm. Z. So um, I had a surprise, a rude awakening that I had a lot more to do. So from actually uh, the end of 2019 until about spring of this year, I, I was in equal measure pulling out my hair and going to the coast to get into nature and go surfing to calm myself down and found, mm. uh, I guess, the strength to push through because I didn't think it was actually going to happen because it, I, every time I thought I was done, I got a sort of a input or feedback or myself said, I'm just not there yet. There's something not 
here. And it, the, uh, Stephen Pressfield calls that the resistance. You're sort mm-hmm. of stuck with your uh, imposter syndrome or some fear that is totally human, but completely mm-hmm. not serving in those moments. And you need to bash it over the head with a bat. <laughs> so that's what I did. I think I did that twice this year and then the pandemic came. So, and so when it was, you said it was released a few weeks ago. So how, how has the feedback been? Has the reaction been so far? You know, I'm over the moon really. Uh, I, I didn't really think that it would resonate with certain people that it has, uh, from mm. people who I've been in touch with, um, that I've worked with, uh, a younger generation that's sort of looking at uh, old world or a baby boomer generation and saying like, that's not our reality at all. Whether mm-hmm. it's the great recession, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's um, just the, the advantage of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So funnily enough, it's, it's been performing very well in the work life balance category in mm. America and in Canada. And there's a chapter called work life blend, which mm. I wrote prior to COVID as you know, the distinction between work and life for many people and for some time has not existed. Yeah. And so what's needed now is much more of healthy boundaries and the ability to move between watering your plants and jumping on a zoom call. Mm. Um, yeah. And even now, as I watch what's coming up with like TED Talks, they have a whole thing um, that's about the environment and and um, David Attenborough's new BBC uh, Netflix show. They're, they're really talking about things that are as important to this, which is climate change, uh, biodiversity, uh, the way our system of work wasn't working and could work to be much more sustainable and kind to both people and to the world that feels like the time is here and it has been. And now people are awake. So I'm hopeful that, you know, a few parts of the book that talk about why work is so important so that we can be more active citizens and look at uh, redistribution of opportunity to people who, you know, don't have even the, the ability to entertain some of the ideas in the book is actually a viable path now. And so what type of people would you say the book is aimed at? Uh, well, funnily enough, the, the, the target market was called uh, shifters and shapers. So it was the shifters were people who were agitated, frustrated, or potentially you know, going through a mini existential crisis and were mm-hmm. like, i got to do something different, whatever that mm-hmm. might be. Uh, you know, the quintessential example is the investment banker who is like two more years and then I'll set up the uh, spin studio or whatever mm. the thing is. So that was one. And the shapers were people who had a high degree of agency already in their work and could adapt or adopt certain things immediately, whether it's a mm. new practice or a new hack or a new technology. Mm. Uh, the publisher loved the name shapers so in effect shifters also become shapers and they're more mm-hmm. aspiring so it's anyone who is crazy enough potentially to want to get joy out of their work then this is a book for them and my hope uh, to answer that again would be that if you do 
it becomes like a butterfly effect. And in a, it, by searching for meaning and joy, you inspire and help others do the same. Hmm. I noticed on, um, I forget if it was your site or the book website, but I saw something about mention of a workologist, which I, I love that, that word. <laughs> so what, what, what do you define as a workologist? Yeah. Well, you know, I could be, this, I feel very okay saying this, you know, um, when you're marketing other people or other brands, it's a lot easier to just come up with something wild and um, not really care that much when, mm-hmm. and this is in many ways, the first experience of marketing myself. I'm, I'm the can tuna or the mm-hmm. can of tuna. Um, I remember coming across that name and it was actually an article written for the New York times called the workologist for many years mm-hmm. about work. Um, and I just, the, the name had, um, the, the, the word had resonated with me. And so when I was writing uh, the copy for the publisher, I just slapped it in there, in there to see if they, you know, were like what, or if they flagged it or if they wanted me to explain. And next thing I knew it was on their website and it was on Amazon and it was out in the world. So mm. it was sort of a subconscious thing of what would, what would happen if I just own that. And in many ways, if you think about an ecologist or an anthropologist or someone who studies culture, mm. what gives anyone the right to call themselves anything, I would say is, yes, degrees and accolades, but also a genuine interest and passion to make the world of work more human has been my mission for the last six, seven years. So I don't need to justify it. I, I just do it. And if someone doesn't want to call me a coach or doesn't want to call me whatever, that's I'm fine with that. Mm. So, so when you've been uh, uh, when you've been coaching people, so typically, what would be the reasons they would approach you in the first place? Is it they realise that their work life is not what they want it to be, or or something different? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I think there's there's definitely that there's individuals who are quietly suffering and are fed up and want to do something about it. And the first step or one of the first steps is to get another perspective. Mm -hmm. So one of the top destroyers of meaningfulness at work are bad bosses. Mm -hmm. That's a common theme. Another theme is job crafting and people don't actually look at the tasks or the relationships they have and that they have the ability to craft them or change them in some way, shape or fashion. So there's all sorts of ways of turning the job you have into the one you love, or at least a job that is bearable or more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the admission that you're in the wrong industry or you need to be in a smaller company to see the progress you're making. So it's, yeah, it's a work conundrum. Mm-hmm. And the other one would be leaders inside an organization who are needing or craving a support system to give them confidence, uh, resilience, um, support to be a grown up and treat mm. people like adults and realize that they're there. They can be selectively vulnerable and that they can show weakness in 
some cases in order to build resilient and safe cultures. And that's an area that I love working in. And that is a lot longer journey in that that takes a lot of willpower and discipline. And a lot of times it's just the select few leaders that really want to do the work as opposed to, and I could be speaking very generally here, uh, the British expression of lipstick, putting lipstick on the pig and saying, we want to develop our people and I want to develop as a leader or an emergent leader, but I really don't want to do what it takes because it's not easy. Um, but I love that area as well. So that, that, that would be somewhere around, you know, transformational coaching or executive coaching, which has a different, um, motivation or incentive because it's changing the culture from within. Since the whole pandemic situation and obviously the work, the world of work looks quite different now to how it did in February. How do you think things will be when this eventually finishes? Who knows when that will be? <laughs> I've actually answered this question and I'm, not, I'm never satisfied with my answer. Mm. So the first answer is I don't know. Um, mm. I really have no idea. Uh, we can look to pat the past to try and, you know, look at anything from basically this, our species is in jeopardy of not existing and not mm. in the next, you know, 10,000 years, but like thousands of years or even hundreds of years. Mm. So a pandemic like this is, is in many ways a gift of saying, mm. wake the fuck up. Mm. Um, if we stick to work, because I can speak to that, the change that we've seen in the last six months is so drastic that some companies have, have been surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised to see that their resistance to flexible and um, working from home type situations was false or was, was unnecessary mm. um, leads to some great things. Um, People can be more present as parents. They can go for runs uh, in the middle of the day. They can save money from commuting. Um, that's all wonderful. There's lots of other things. CFOs are, are cheering because they're saving money on on, on uh, rent or the mortgage of the of their office. Um, on the flip side is we have basically a huge tsunami of mental health disorders and mm. isolation, unemployment, and underemployment knocking at the door and it's yeah. not pretty at all. It's, mm. it's, it's something that we, I don't think we can actually appreciate right now, but in a year we can look back on this conversation and be like, Holy moly. And mm. that's scary to me. Uh, in that one, I'm you and me are okay. Like we can make a living on the internet. Mm. Um, we in some ways been preparing for this. That's mm. not the majority we're, we're yes. actually a, a minority in that, in that regard. So it leads to great, uh, a greater inequality gap with more people that have more access and more opportunity and more people who don't. And that leads to things like riots and other things that we know happen when when 
there's too much disparity. Mm. So that's a, that's a concern. We're seeing it kind of in America. America is kind of epitomizing <laughs> the, the baseness of humanity. Mm. Um, and I'm hoping that this is, there's a silver lining in that fundamentally, I believe humans are good and that for the most part, people will do the right thing if given the opportunity. So mm-hmm. as an optimist, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this as like, it's going to get dark and maybe even more darker and then there'll be some light. Yeah. I mean, we'll walk with the, I suppose it's been an amazing amalgamation. Well, not, that's not the right word, but the, the combination of things that have happened this year with the pandemic and the George Floyd thing. And now with the elections, like in the States, it's going to be interesting to see how, well, obviously, depending on how the elections pan out, how things will be over there, say, after the elections finish. Exactly. It's like back to your original word. Interesting. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, we have had, I don't think we've had anywhere near as bad a situation over here in the UK. As, and there was obviously some reactions, as there were worldwide, to the whole kind of George Floyd thing. And there was many demonstrations but i think it was very different here because our demonstrations were more about the unfairness of how people of color are often treated whereas our police they're not they're not perfect but they're nowhere near the level of the police in 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 the state so it wasn't so much anti-police or not, not to the level it was in the states anyway I remember when I moved to London, there was a vote of should, what do you call British police? With the oh, Bobbies. Bobbies shouldn't be allowed to wear, uh, to, to possess guns. Yeah. And I was like scratching my head. I'm like, what do you, like, I didn't, I had, I was like, I didn't understand. I was like, so, hey, you stop. And like, they're like, screw you. And you keep running, right? Down, you know, down Ladbroke Grove or whatever. And, then I realized after reading and talking to people, they're like, if police carry guns, 100% and without a doubt, there'll be more deaths. Mm. There'll be more deaths by police and there'll be more deaths of criminals and or wrongly accused criminals. Yeah. And that brute force and that sort of authority that is wielded by carrying a gun mm. is embedded in the American consciousness, both as a civilian and as a police mm man or woman and uh i know that's just one aspect of it but yeah you're right uh england versus america in terms of police brutality and all of these things is is really not comparable mm. on um going back to talking about work and and i'm guessing so one of the things you help people with is to realize um the importance of of, of life and not, not just working all the time as well. Is that something that you, you talk to your clients about? Well, you know, coaches get, they have like a consultant has um, ambiguity and is opaque. So mm. um, career coach, performance coach, mindset coach, relationship coach. And then there's this, I don't know, it sounds like Maslow's hierarchy, the life coach. Mm. And it's like, what what gives me or what gives Tony the right to 
tell someone or advise someone or coach someone on their life? And I actually don't think that's the right question. I think as therapy goes back into the past and looks at unresolved issues and your development as a child and your first uh, experience of love, Mm-hmm. The modality of coaching is really about the here and now. What's your perceived blocks? What are your limiting beliefs? What are your current patterns and neural pathways? And where are you going? Or where do you mm-hmm. want to go? Or, you know, for woo-woo, lang- woo-woo language, what do you want to manifest? Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a lot more exciting. And it happens to be that I, I love and am experienced in the area of work. But to think that work and life or personal and professional development don't um, meet or actually aren't totally enmeshed is silly. Mm. And for a long time, I thought personal development was something you did like only in the self-help section and only by going on sort of, you know, the Pasana retreats or something. And now my belief is that the two are completely united. And in fact, being a better person makes you a better leader. And being a better worker can make you a better person and that they're all lumped together. So I don't really call myself a life coach, but I do believe that coaching can be instrumental in improving your life. Mm-hmm. Something I saw, again, looking through some of the stuff that you've done in, in your book, and I saw this, the five different sections. Um, I think the book is about the teacher the learner the mobilizer etc what what area would you say you find people will struggle with the most uh that's a great question i think in recent conversations i would say the leader as coach and or the leader as giver and starting with the leader as giver you know it's a lot of that, there's a great book by Adam Grant called Give and Take. And, mm. and the idea there is givers are running a marathon and takers are running the 100-meter dash. Mm-hmm. In a male-orientated or in a, in a culture, a corporate culture, where male values have been the way the cookies crumbled or the ship has sailed, mm. a lot of the times what looks like giving is actually – um, masked or manipulative of taking later on. Mm-hmm. I'll be nice to you. I'll scratch your back. I'll do this, but I'll keep a, uh, I'll keep tabs. Yeah. And then, you know, two years down the road, when it comes time for the promotion, I'm going to step on your face. Yeah. So I think there's been some, there's been misuse or abuse of that. So when you say giver as coach, it is starting with, how can I help? How can I empower you, enable you, support you to do your best work? No mm-hmm. questions asked. I don't want anything in return because that's my job. I'm getting paid very handsomely and probably getting shares as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the one that I think can be, I don't know, challenging. And then mm-hmm. the, the, the leader as coach um, is really switching back to sort of these powerful questions um, and getting rid of the sort of I versus you or, you know, me versus we. So something mm-hmm. like um, you come to me, Tony, with some challenge or issue. And instead of saying like, 
go back and do the presentation again or go and do more research and come back to me, mm-hmm. I, I could say, where do we think we're getting stuck and what's another possibility that we haven't entertained? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, in many ways, I'm, I'm losing my positional authority for a moment and relating to you as, yes, I'm still your boss, but we need to solve this for our customers, for our shareholders, for, you know, citizens. And that you're seeing more and more, and it's embodied in feminine values, uh, mm. transparency, collaboration, cohesion, and you know the, the entire Brene Brown movement of daring to lead is, is premised on leading from heart. Mm. I'm just thinking, so you, you talked before about, you started writing a book, when was it, 2016? Yeah. Before you actually started writing a book, was there a period, was there a, a, a catalyst where your thoughts really changed into sort of the way they are now? Or was it just like a sort of gradual change or, or were, did you, were you thinking along these sort of lines, maybe say 10, 15 years ago? Mm. 10 or 15 years ago, I was thinking, why aren't companies working more like Hollywood and setting up an LLC, gathering together really great talent doing amazing work and then disbanding Mm. my company called social fabric is premised on that Mm. uh, sort of way of working, which is fluid and much more results oriented orientated. So Mm. I think I was thinking about that, about how to structure and organize as a firm in 2002, 2003 Mm -hmm. when it comes to, the individual and how the individual works, you know, any, anywhere from when Tim Ferriss wrote the uh, four hour work week all the mm-hmm. way through to sort of the movement of location independent or geo flexible workers or digital nomads. I, I was like, great work can happen everywhere or anywhere with Wi-Fi. Why mm-hmm. are so few people doing it? And what I learned is one, there's a lot of people who have the opportunity to go and work anywhere and choose not to, because they're not necessarily wanderers or, uh, you know, world travelers in the way that they, they, they want to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And there's an underside of never really staying in the same place and moving around all the time. And actually, you know, a lot of people living in say Thailand and not paying local taxes and having their company incorporated in Delaware. So all sorts of sort of questionable practices. So there's Mm. so many different sides as well as the precarious nature of gig work. Mm. And so sort of joining this movement of people who could work from anywhere as, as you just moved out of London and now, you know, Mm. I was trying to make sense of it of like, okay, what do you need? You need the tools, you need the clients, or if you're a startup, you need the technology or, you need both. You need the discipline. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, my thinking started to shift of like, who, who am I, who am I fooling? If, if I have a client call with someone in France and they expect me to be in London, mm-hmm. does it matter? And if, if they're not going to work with me because I happen to be in a different city, then maybe they're the wrong client. But for a long time I was catering to what I wanted. I thought people wanted the perception you know, the quintessential example is the law firm with the big oak table and 
and elaborate uh, fixtures, which is in effect clients' money. Yeah. And now you have paperless law firms that don't have an office, and and mm. it's very hard to charge four hundred quid an hour and justify it, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think to answer your question, I think my thinking was much more gradual, but there was a moment when I left London and started to realize that London isn't the center of the universe and there are other news channels besides the BBC. Mm. And that was somewhat liberating and disorientating and uh, scary. Mm. Where do you, where do you see your business sort of expanding to, or how do you see things shaping over the next few years? Well, I had this conundrum, which I haven't really, um, articulated, but I accidentally deleted my MailChimp newsletter, which I've been working on for 15 years. Mm. And uh, I had like, I didn't even have a turnaround. It just, it was like, oh, this is a new chapter. So I have a new newsletter called The Shape of Work, which I've cobbled together with the contacts that I have had subscribed for the last two years. Mm. So it's a couple thousand people. Um, and then I have all the people who bought the book, which is performing well. So my first immediate thing is I'm collaborating with an organizational psychologist to, to create a deeper dive. So in many ways, group and peer coaching starting in January and to take some of the ideas of leadership and finding joy in your work and working with a band of creatives or freelancers instead of necessarily hiring them and all sorts of different ways of approaching work as a course. So that's um, a lot of authors end up doing that, you know, a deeper dive. Um, mm. But I'm excited about it because it's not just me talking. It's a bunch of experts. And in many ways, it's the participants that are going to make, um, make it what it is. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The idea as well is to have a retreat when the world will allow that and it will feel natural. So to get people into beautiful surroundings like where you are. Um, I actually did that in Norfolk. or I can't pronounce Norfolk very well. Is that right? Norfolk, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was beautiful there. And uh, that was in 2011, right after Arab Spring. Mm. Um, so that's the immediate plan for, for myself. I think when I think about Coaching, I don't think I'm ever going to stop. I may not mm -hmm. be as uh, immersed in it as I am now. And I also am aware that I want to continue writing. I don't actually have a next book in mind, but I do have an idea that the last few years have been very much independent or a large part of my work has been me resting on my own shoulders. And I'm much more interested and open now uh, back to collaborating with this woman on the course to start writing and or working in collectives. So I'm starting to do some group coaching for companies with other uh, coaches and, and helping companies transform. And that to me is a lot. Uh, it's a, like a new energy of, of really the collective and what we're actually mourning a lot is group experiences and gathering which is happening in a different way. I'm really excited about that and doing that to help uh, individuals and teams transform. 
And so do you think that will involve that sustain where you are or would you be maybe looking to move to a different part of the world or, or? Uh, that's fine. I'm going to, I'm going back to the Island, which I told you where I go surf, which the water is getting pretty cold. So I'm going there mm-hmm. next month in November. Um, I actually don't think I'm going to move from Canada until like move, like travel until next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had plans to go to England and to Portugal, which has some great um, things happening in Lisbon and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think I, I don't, I, I, I don't have the answer because I would say so. There's a part of me that loves Vancouver and wants to stay here. And there's a part of me that also is excited about uh, cities like Lisbon I still love London and I was traveling there twice a year. Um, places in Spain that are more for visiting. So real, really I'm happy to spend the majority of my time in Vancouver and then move to, to move to places for a month or a period of time to immerse myself more than what would be the, the quintessential American two week vacation for your, for your year of, um, of being employed and really look at these as like mini excursions. Mm. And do you think that you'll start offering your start offering some things like courses online? Yeah, it's all, it's all online. The physical face to face right now um, just seems not, it's not tone deaf, but the only thing I'm really doing are walk, and talk one-to-one coaching. I'm not really getting into a room. And even when I teach at the university, it's all going to be virtual at least until spring. Mm-hmm. So I just, I think the collective psyche is such that to gather workers into an office or a room to do training doesn't seem, um, and I love your opinion on this doesn't seem the highest priority when you could approximate it or even, uh, equal, uh, deliver training equal to it by people staying safe or staying in their homes or mm. logging in from their cubicle or their mm. office alone. So basically alone together. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my current, uh, experience of it but i'm sure different places have different um uh, ways of approaching it so if for people who are maybe interested to learn more about the sort of courses that you're going to be maybe doing and to find out more about the book and so on where, where are the best places for them to look the book and the course they can go to shapers.life mm-hmm. um the coaching they can go to jonasaltman.com mm-hmm. And for companies that want to have um, culture change or group coaching, they can go to socialfabric.com. And for the coaching, what, what kind of people is it that it's, it's aimed at? Who do you think is most helpful for? Well, you nailed it with the other uh, question around the work conundrum. I like to call it transition. We're all mm-hmm. emerging. We're all evolving. But there are turning points in careers. I just finished this diploma or this degree. 
I've been at this company for two years and I'm a bit itchy. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of going to work for a startup or I'm at a startup. Mm. I'm thinking of going and working for an end up. That's what gets me excited. So individuals that are navigating their career and want to shape it in a way that is uh, energizing and um, makes them come alive, then Mm. that's the type of client that I tend to attract. And is your, do you typically um, sort of work with clients for just a sort of short period or is it ongoing for a few years or what's your approach? Uh, you know, the, the management consultancy model, McKinsey model is let's create dependency and continually to continue to rejig these Excel sheets. Mm. Uh, I know that's a generalization. I think mm. coaching or great coaching or effective coaching is about um, building capacity and Mm self-reliance. So typically I won't really work with anyone for longer than a year. Mm -hmm. Six months is usually the point at which we reassess and say, um, maybe you need a different coach, maybe press pause and three months would be the shortest engagement. Is there um is there a book, Jonas, that you would uh, recommend to people? Is there a book you particularly like that you often recommend? I've got. I'll answer this question. My first answer is fiction, and it's The Great Gatsby, which I've read for the second time, and it just gets better. If you've seen the movie, mm-hmm. it may have tainted things, but yeah. um, that writing is just fantastic. And in terms of nonfiction, which I know is a separate book, I would say Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning Mm. is for sure uh, a powerful book that can let people know how individuals, how humans reveal meaning to themselves. Mm. When you talked about The Great Gatsby and you – I think forget exactly how you worded it. But you, you said something about the writing, and, and earlier on in the episode, you mentioned that you really enjoy writing. So, the writing that you are you doing that sort of regular blog post, or what is it? You, when you say you enjoy writing, what is it you're doing? Regards, regards to well, that? yeah. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald can cr- can have a narrative structure and paragraphs and metaphors and descriptors that make my jaw drop because I, mm. I you know, the, the way to tap into your brain and get your imagination going, I think is like almost like a paintbrush. Mm. Whereas nonfiction business self-help writing, it, it's almost inappropriate to be that flowery. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I mean, I have written short stories, but when it comes to nonfiction, which is pretty much what I do, I'm now in effect writing for, and I hate to say this, for uh, a world or a reader or a generation that has no attention span, like Mm -hmm. absolute zilch. So 600 words, maximum 1,000, tell me what I need to know working from home. Tell me what I need to know about the new modes of leadership. Tell me what I need to know about building resiliency. And that's been my life for the last three or four, three months of just churning out articles.
for magazines and, and the press that is yeah. kind of like a modernized version of what's in the book or a COVID uh, friendly version. And I'm not, you know, I'm not upset about it, but I don't necessarily think that that goes to the craft of writing and getting necessarily deeper or better, but it does allow for like, you know, thinking aloud and getting uh, not caught up with the, the perfectionist uh, conundrum. So yeah, so short answer is I'm going to, I'm continuing to write. I'm not really writing in any way that is approaching what I would say is the stuff that, you know, can make me laugh and cry aloud uh, in equal measure. And so that to me is, is just sort of, it, it's entertainment. I mean, I'm reading a book by Douglas Couplin right now, who's a Vancouver artist. And I, I, every morning I'm laughing aloud and I realized that I could be sound like a crazy person uh, and I don't care. Um, and, you know, then again, what is crazy? So, um, well, Finally, Jonas, is there a quotation that you particularly like? Yes. Uh, it is, is attributed to Martin Short, the comedian, and it is no one is any one thing. And why does that speak to you? Well, Martin Short actually is, he's Canadian. He lost his wife to cancer. He lost a brother to a car accident. I lost someone else to cancer. He never really broke into the comedy world like um, Martin Short, uh, like Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you read about him and you listen, he is the master of reinvention, the master of improvisation. And like Seinfeld is one of those people who just had incredible discipline and resilience and mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that quote resonates with me because when you think about his life and his career, he used his loss and he, and he used the signals that the world was giving him as fuel to propel himself forward instead of staying still. And I, I, I resonate with that because if I had chosen a different career path that was more stable or more secure or perceived to be more secure, I don't think I'd be having this conversation with you. Hmm. Well, Jonas, thank you um, for the last, what, 50 minutes or so. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure. Next week is episode 14 with Richard Burrows and we're taking a trip to the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Just the name sounds amazing, doesn't it? Richard moved to the Sunshine Coast about uh, 18 months ago. He was previously living in in, uh, Melbourne and we discussed some of the reasons why he made that move and it's a fascinating story. Richard has quite a combination of different skills. He's a strength and conditioning coach. He's a CrossFit coach. He's an instructor in a couple of breathing techniques, including the Oxygen Advantage, XPT Life. He's a a paddy free driver, a free diver instructor. And he met all these different skills he has. It's quite unique in the way he's able to help people. So we find out a lot more about that in next week's edition. Hope you enjoy. If you enjoyed this week's edition and 
Anyone who you feel may get some benefit from some of the stuff that Jonas shared with us, why not share the episode with them? Why not subscribe, leave a review for us, and I hope you have a great week.